0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On June 4th, 2022, we talked with Aaron Embry, a graduate student at University of Texas Southwest Medical Center in Dallas. He obtained his bachelor's degree in biology at Millersville University of Pennsylvania. He now studies host determinants of arbovirus restriction. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So first of all, well, thank you for having me. I'm actually a big fan of the podcast. um, And so I'm excited to be a part of it. Uh, But my name is uh, Aaron Embry. And I'm from a small town, uh, Spring Grove in southern Pennsylvania. And I went to undergrad actually at Millersville University in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So it's only about 40 minutes or so from where I grew up, I didn't kind of branch out a whole awful lot there. Um, And I got my bachelor's in biology with a minor in chemistry. And after graduating, then I worked briefly in industry for about two years. I worked two years while I was a junior and senior um, to help pay my way through college as well. So four years total. Um, And then I decided I was going to test the waters with academia. And I worked there for two additional years before deciding that a PhD was what I actually really wanted to do. Um, and so that puts me where I am today, a Ph.D. candidate at UT Southwestern here in Dallas, Texas. <laughs>
0: Great. Um, and can you tell us sort of how you chose your particular uh, Ph.D. institution and then how you chose your lab? People are often interested in that. You know, what are the choices? You know, what attracted you to those places?
1: Oh, man. Yeah, uh, it's been quite like the long, strange trip, really. <laughs> So, well, after I graduated undergrad and I briefly mentioned there that I worked in industry for two years, um, it was pitched to me to potentially move to DFW or the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area. And I decided at the time, this was four or five some odd years ago, um, that I was young, dumb and broke enough to make that, that move and pick up and explore what else was out there um, and have some adventures outside of just small town Pennsylvania. And So I moved to Dallas. um, And in doing so, I needed to find a job. And uh, so I needed to pay rent, eat food. (laughs) And I actually posted on Reddit uh, what the big um, hiring agencies were in the area, but what big science or tech places were around. And essentially, the two major answers I got were Alcon, which is uh, industry, or UT Southwestern, which was academia. And so given that I was really interested in potentially pursuing academia more, um, I decided I was going to apply mostly there. I did dabble a little bit in maybe going to industry, you know, you're trying to make sure you can cover your bases and have backups. But I was really lucky and really fortunate. Um, I got hired in the immunology department under uh, Dr. Robert Orchard. Uh, And I told Rob at the time that I was interested in potentially pursuing a grad school uh, further later. And he said, "Okay, if that's what you think you want to do, then. I'm going to treat you like a student. I'm going to give you your own project. I'm going to make you present at lab meetings or or floor meetings with other the other departments. You're going to make posters, go to talks and symposiums and stuff. And so I did. I did all of that. And I really had an absolutely amazing time. Um, it really solidified to me that a PhD is what I wanted to do. And so after the two years that I told, I told Rob I would help, help establish the lab, uh, getting projects going, recruiting some students and stuff. So Brittany Stewart was actually Posted on this podcast back in episode, I think thirty-five or so. Um, after helping everyone get established, I then applied to grad school myself, and I applied here at UT Southwestern as well as a couple other places back in Pennsylvania. So that's where my family still was, and I had considered maybe wanting to move back. But um, I got in here at UT Southwestern and decided that uh, I was interested in staying. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want to go back just yet, and I wanted to explore what other people on campus were potentially working on, rather than than just staying in Rob's lab. Um, if I didn't like what other people were doing, maybe I could circle back around and, and ask Rob about rejoining. But he he kind of pushed me and said, you know, go out there and see what else is there. You really only know me so far. And so I did. I reached out to uh, actually an old collaborator, um, some projects uh, that I worked on when I was in Rob's lab, uh, Dr. Don Gammon, as well as Rob's old PI and mentor, uh, Dr. Neil Alto. And I reached out to them individually, but they actually. Um, kind of met outside and then came back to me together and pitched that I potentially do this joint mentorship between the two of them um, because they had recently received some funding for this really interesting project that kind of spans both host innate immunity as well as bacterial infections and co-infection with viruses and stuff. And um, so I rotated in both of their labs here at UT Southwestern, your umbrella program. You don't really have to pick right away. You can kind of test the waters with a bunch of different stuff. And so I I tested the waters with bacteria, test the because I hadn't really done that. Um, I'd been mostly a virologist up to this point. And and I actually really enjoyed it. I fell in love. I was kind of hooked at at all the moving parts there. And and so I joined and that's where I am now.
0: (laughs) Cool, cool. And I guess I forgot to ask you, um, way back when, have you always been interested in science or was this something that just kind of developed gradually?
1: yeah. That's a pretty great question. Um, as far as I can remember, I've always had a knack for it. My, my mom and my grandma like to uh, share this picture of me dressed up in like a white coat as a doctor when I was like two. <laughs> and so, I mean, growing up, um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively dyslexic. So I've already, already kind of struggled with reading and writing. And I feel like when you're young, you tend to gravitate towards the things that you're good at. And for me, that was mostly math and science. Um, and so Despite the fact that I was good at those, I'd still kind of coasted through high school without a really a whim or an idea of what I wanted to do next. Um, until I had in my senior year, um, I had this chemistry class with this really incredible teacher, Miss Kimber, um, and she just was so patient and colorful and really helped foster my interest in science um, and all science for that matter. And it was around that time that I decided, you know, I was going to go to undergrad for bio and chem. Um, but when I went to Millersville, um, generally situated in the, the hills of Pennsylvania is not a virology hub. <laughs> it's mostly a lot of agricultural science. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to get involved in virology there until actually I came to Texas and, and was um, in Rob's lab. And that's where I uh, kind of developed my niche and experience with, with viruses and mostly influenza in his lab, but a little bit of the MNV work, um, which is a mouse norovirus. Um, you're in norovirus and that was where I, I kind of started the the virology track um and now it's just kind of taken me by storm.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and can you tell us a little bit about what it's like having co mentor so that's a little bit more unusual in science although I think it's getting more common now um so tell us what that's like.
1: Yeah uh so I my current lab um the Gammon Lab has me as well as three independent students that are just to him. And then in Neil's lab, he's got uh, one independent, well, two independent students now. We just got another one. Um, and then two co-mentored students as well. And he's dabbled a, a bit more in this um, co-PI ship as as our Uh, University likes to tote um, during recruitment and other things. We are a really collaborative work environment, and a lot of the PIs talk to each other. Um, It's it's a really wonderful place to be, and I really like having two PIs. Um, It has its struggles because it's double the people to potentially mess up communication with or miss a meeting with that you didn't realize, but um, it's also double the people that are really excited when you're project is going in a really cool new direction. um, And it's double the people to bounce ideas off of. Um, Neil's lab in particular is a little bit more developed. And so he has more postdocs. So that's some older, more established scientists I can go to with more technical problems. Um, but, But Don's lab has more grad students that I can connect with on like a personal level and just like be friends with and go out with so that's really, really interesting. Um, but I, everyone also knows that I'm a relatively social person here. So I kind of dabble around a bunch of PIs. I like to say that I collect them like Pokemon cards. Um, so I go around and talk to all the people on the floor and, and, and interact with everyone, really. So having two PIs doesn't really necessarily feel all that different than one PI to me. It's um, mostly just double the meetings is the, the major negative.
0: <laughs> right, right. So um, I guess then why don't you tell us a little bit about your thesis work, sort of like the bigger picture and then maybe some of the types of experiments you're doing, the techniques that you're using to answer those questions.
1: Sure, yeah, that's the fun part, right? The virology and what we're excited to talk about when we go to ASV this year. Um, And so boiled down, like I kind of mentioned earlier, my project has three moving parts, right? We have the host, the bacteria and the virus mostly. And so kind of starting with the virus host interaction, um, I primarily study arboviruses, which I feel like for the case of ASV, most people know what that is, but in case anyone doesn't, um, arboviruses are an informal classification of viruses that are essentially anything transmitted to a host um, through an arthropod vector, right? So that includes fleas, ticks, um, biting flies, and then of course your friendly neighborhood mosquito. Um, And for me, I primarily study VSV, uh, Ross River virus, on young, young virus, and Sindbis virus. Uh, so that's three toga viruses and then the rhabdovirus. Um, and despite these viruses being really, really adapted to infecting dipterin insects, so that includes the flies and mosquitoes that I mentioned earlier, uh, they do not actually establish very productive infections in Lepidopteran cells. So that's um, mostly moths and butterfly cells. And uh, the curiosity there is the fact that these two orders of insects are actually really closely related. And so the barriers between them two, uh, when you think of the case of like innate immunity, uh, hasn't really been investigated. And so the Gammon lab in particular is really interested in uncovering the differences in uh, those two systems and what barriers to viral infections are there in a lepidopteran cell. And so previously, actually, he showed that if you co-infect these restricted arboviruses with a large dna pox virus like vaccinia uh, so vaccinia virus uh, really truly really well studied pox virus at this point <laughs> uh, you can actually rescue the um, restricted arbovirus replication if under a co-infection system and that's going to be this uh, actually the the talk by a fellow student uh, dahi so she's also presenting at asb this year Um, And so if you're interested in that, uh, go check her talk out. But um, my project is really taking that to the next step and saying, can we rescue these viruses now with bacteria? And that's where my other mentor comes in, Dr. Neil Alto uh, and his lab at its core is really interested in trying to understand the dynamics of these proteins uh, that are used by bacteria during infections known as bacterial effector proteins. Um, And these effector proteins are secreted into a host cell Uh, through usually a needle-like apparatus, such as a type 3 secretion system, either before or after uh, an infection. Um, And these effectors have been shown to uh, modulate a myriad of host cell uh, interactions. you got immune evasion, uh, membrane ruffling to promote uptake, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, And so the majority of the bacteria that I use in my study actually study intracellularly. So that's the same place, if you think about it, that the virus itself is trying to replicate, right? And so we hypothesized that they're likely encountering a lot of the same or similar barriers um, and obviously some other ones because you're two different pathogens. But they're they're all trying to really modulate the same host cell environment. And so uh, we were interested in um, potentially looking at uh, what those um, bacterial effector proteins could be doing that might be able to rescue my virus. So if you think about it, a bacteria has way more genetic real estate than my small 11 KB VSV genome. Uh, It can encode for so many more things. Um, And so what we did uh, was we cloned out a plasmid library of over 200 bacterial effector proteins, um, most of which with currently relatively unknown functions, um, don't really know what they do yet. And it hopes to screen them then against these um, restricted arboviruses for any effective protein that might be able to rescue that infection. Um, and what I identified was a myriad, roughly I think twenty or so for for each individual virus. So the four that I mentioned earlier. But um, what really stuck out was these uh, roughly six what I call core effectors, um, which were able to rescue all four of the viruses that I screened. Um, and so they obviously are targeting something that's that's really important to um, both a bacterial uh, infection and a viral infection. Um, and my work has really been honing in on one of those top hits, which is this IPA-H effector, uh, which is encoded for by Shigella. Um, and so I tend to use a lot of uh, viral rescue assays, right? So the co-infections and seeing if I can get infection, when I overexpress or delete something, um, as well as given the fact that this IpH effector is uh, a known family member of uh, bacterial E3 ligases, I tend to use a lot of ubiquitin-related uh, experiments. So um, from, from note, it would be like u which are uh, ubiquitin-activated interaction traps uh, that you can use to kind of uh, screen hosts uh, lysates for potential substrates of your ligase. Um, as well as uh, degradation assays. So if you express the ligase with a potential target, does it de- get degraded? And then of course, if you add back things like MG132, can you uh, mess up that, that degradation? Um, and then most, most notably, I think the gold standard right now for the field is like in vitro ubiquination assays. Um, so if you purify both proteins and you mix them in a controlled environment, Uh, do they still get ubiquinated? Is that a direct target or was that degradation and off-target effect of maybe what the real target is? Um, So that's kind of mostly the things that I'm doing right now.
0: Great. And the bacterial proteins that you're talking about, is this more a tool to understand sort of the virus host interaction or the bacterial host interaction? Or are you actually thinking that sort of in nature, there might be this interaction between all three?
1: Yeah, uh, I guess given the context of the viruses that we're studying, a real natural interaction between let's say a arbovirus and a gut pathogen seems relatively unlikely. It, it um, has to but, be, I guess,
0: in the mosquito, right? So not so much in, like, yeah, human hosts, but maybe I guess in the mosquito you could have interaction maybe.
1: Well, well yeah, I mean, there's, that's, that's kind of where I parse down that we we do just have so many moving parts for this project. And it's honestly, I mean, the, the blunt way of answering that question is I tailor what I say is the tool based on what my, um, audience is. So if I'm at a bacterial conference, I'm talking about, I really want to, I'm interested in this Iph effector and how that can be used during bacterial infections and look at this virus helping me tease out those interactions. And then here at ASB, um, I'm really interested in the viral interactions and look at this bacterial effector that was helping me, um, interact and and perturb host cell systems that we don't yet understand all of the the intricacies behind. It was only very recently that a lepidopteran genome was even published in the literature. So we we really were limited in what our resources were to perturb this system. Um, And so these are like tools and mechanisms that we can use to kind of get around um, all of these blockades and really get to the the nitty gritty biology underneath. Right, right.
0: And do you think that some of your core... Bacterial effectors could actually uh, generate per- permissivity to viruses that don't even infect either of your sort um, in- of your uh, your insect host species.
1: Uh, potentially, yeah. Um, some of the things that we're looking at also um, are the fact that uh, it, I noted VSV is a one of my four viruses, and VSVG G protein is is a common protein for like lentiviral work and stuff, and. A lot of this work right now in um, lepidopterin systems is kind of inhibited uh, for, for lentiviruses because that VSVG protein, which is usually coding lentiviruses, can't infect these cells. So um, you know, things like CRISPR and, and other larger screens are, are way more hindered and a lot more difficult to conduct. Um, and so we're also kind of thinking that this is stuff that might be able to be used as more of a method to making those experiments a little bit more permissive in the future, which would really help open up a whole avenue of new um, interactions and areas of study potentially in the future if we could help uh, establish those kinds of tools and and, uh, protocols for people in the future.
0: Right, great. Um, And so thinking, uh, I guess, in the future a little bit more, now that you've been a PhD student for a little while, what are your (laughs) thoughts sort of like in the short term and then in the medium term? What are you thinking of doing?
1: In the short term, um, getting through my thesis. So I just qualified uh, this last um, couple of months here. So I need to put together a committee, um, a a thesis committee, as well as really define what my work is going to be moving forward. Up to this point, I had been doing these large screens, you know, and and trying to figure out what my next steps were going to be. And it's getting to the point now that I in the short term uh, goal is figure out what I really want to do. Um, and what my thesis is going to be about, and then formulate the committee around that, uh, that I think is going to give me the best chances of success and make me the best scientist that I can be. Um, And then in the long term, uh, I really enjoy mentoring students. So my current PIs both know that. Uh, And so the fact that UT Southwestern doesn't necessarily have an undergrad campus, uh, we do have things like the surf program and, and other things that get uh, undergrads here for research fellowships and such, but uh, it's not like we have a large plethora of undergrads for you to interact with. Um, but both of my mentors know that I'm, I'm really interested in that. And so they tend to give me rotation students to mentor uh, for their first couple of months in lab. And so my I have a partial uh, long-term goal right now to potentially um, look at starting my own little lab on an undergraduate campus so that I could get the opportunity to both teach Um, and mentor students, as well as have potentially a a more established lab um, and and some more graduate students for some of the higher tier work.
0: Cool, cool. Um, And then I guess just to finish up, um, what has the last two years during the pandemic been like for you? So it's been, you know, a trying time for everyone, but sort of an unusual time to be a virologist. So how has it sort of affected you personally and um, professionally, I guess?
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely been interesting. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot of really unique experiences and life changes during COVID. Um, when lockdown started, I was still a technician in the Orchard Lab, and I, I felt a little guilty not getting able to complete quite as much as I'd hoped to do uh, before I got had to leave for grad school. Um, I'd already been accepted, and, and my timeline was there, and we were just kind of trying to get through everything we could. Um, and unfortunately, I, I didn't get through quite as much as I would have liked. Um, but then I, I got to start grad school in the middle of a pandemic, which was also really weird. Um, so everything was was kind of online. A lot of teaching was online. And unfortunately, uh, learning things in the lab and experiments from six feet away has its own challenges. But but we persevered. We got through it. Um, and And we're doing a lot better now. Um, Texas is doing a lot better and and on campus we're really great around campus about managing our our risks and uh, being a virologist was both rewarding and detrimental I think Um, though I don't necessarily study SARS-CoV-2 I got a lot of questions from friends and family because they know I work with viruses Um, and so I both got a little bit perturbed because I had to go I wanted to make sure I was up to date with the literature and what was right Um, I didn't want to be leading them astray Um, But also I got to do what I love, which is teach. And if you're teaching the ones you love and you love what you teach, then it was just a really, really great time. And I found that super rewarding. So it was not all bad. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. And I hope to meet a bunch of people that potentially listen to this uh, the day of.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at you.